so glad that you guys are here with us. And thanks so much for being on the journey with us as we started this new year, as we waded into the treacherous, tricky waters of talking about religion and Christianity and politics. Uh, I got to tell this story. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, somebody who's been coming to our church for a while has been trying to convince her sister and her friend to come to Bridgeway. No, you got to check this place out. It's really, really great. And the one thing she said over and over again, they never talk about politics. And it was the first morning we kicked off this series and it's just the greatest thing ever. Uh, but uh, we think it's an important conversation. That's why we're doing it. And we're now living in uh, the beginning of a presidential election year. If you didn't know that, there have been votes cast in the primaries in uh, Iowa, the caucuses in Iowa, and the New Hampshire primaries. And you guys, um, it's going to get crazy. It's going to get really, really bad. It's going to get ugly. It's going to get muddy, all those different kind of things. But our hope in this series is to help us be a group of people that don't join the crazy, <laughs> uh, to actually make some decisions, plural, that's why we call the Decisions 2024, decisions uh, to engage differently, to look differently, to walk through this season, to tell a better story. And I've said this a couple times, but the vision that I have is on November 10th, the Sunday after the election this year, where uh, we will gather together <laughs> and people that voted for somebody who lost, people that voted for somebody who won, but we will gather together. And my prayer and my vision is that we can come back together and be proud of the story that we told, to live differently than what we saw and lived in 2020 and 2016, to actually walk through this season in a Christ-like way. And that's why we're walking uh, this journey together. Um, as I've been told from some of my pastor friends, you know, it's January, right? This is like the worst way to grow your church ever, kicking off a new year like this. But like, it's what we do here at Bridgeway, I guess. Self-sabotage. <laughs> anyway, uh, we've had some ground rules that we've walked through every single week because I know we've got some new people in the room walking into the end of a conversation. And we all have a little pensive spirit about these conversations because the way we've seen it done maybe poorly or coercively. Uh, but the ground rules we've had for this series is this. Um, we started by saying this, Bridgeway is and will always be a politically diverse church. I have people ask me if we're a progressive church, if we're a conservative church, if we're right or left church, Republican, Democrat church, and my answer is all of those things and none of those things, really, uh, because uh, I don't know if you know this, but you're sitting down the aisle with people that voted against your interest and against your vote in 2020. And watching the door. Nobody ran towards the door, which is great. But like, we have a lot of different opinions, a lot of different perspectives and political thoughts in this room. And we actually think diversity is a good thing, but we're not ever going to be, as long as I get to be the lead pastor here, be a church that like pushes one political partisan agenda. We don't think that's the game that Jesus is playing and we're not going to play it either. When the next ground rule is this, that we believe that there is no official Christian party, political party. Uh, we know that both sides of the aisle say that if you write in Jesus, they count those for them, but that's not really the way that it works. Uh, we've said throughout this series, uh, quoting Tony Evans, that Jesus came not to take sides, but he came to take over. And we talked earlier in the series about the kingdom of God is ushered in not by, a dem or not by an elephant or a donkey, but through the way of a lamb. And Jesus was never here to like claim a political partisan victory. And so there is no official politi Christian political party. I will say this, I will caution all of us that every single time that we believe that there is one, we shut people out of our influence and that political party uses you. So be mindful about how much we go in with one political party thinking it's the way of Jesus. The third ground rule is this, that Bridgeway will not be endorsing a presidential candidate in 2024. So I love our tax-exempt status. 
Uh, we're going to keep it that way, actually. So we're not going to be endorsing any candidate. So please take a deep breath. Again, we're not talking about decisions on that level. Like who you vote for, that's an important decision. But the decisions that we've been speaking of, man, I think that there are decisions that actually shape us more. They uh, challenge us in the way that we walk and live and use power in our world today and how we view power. And I think they're more vital for us today as well. So today we're in the final week of the series, the fourth decision, and we'll just put it here. This is where we're going. Decision number four, that I will live like Jesus is king today, no matter what side wins the election. I will live like Jesus is king right now, today, no matter what side wins the election in November. This is where we're going. We're going to put our eggs in the basket of Jesus being king, not just who wins the presidential election. I was thinking about this. Um, you, we've all heard it said that actions speak louder than words, right? I mean, we've said that all the time in our passive aggressive comments back to our spouses and things like that too. Like actions speak louder than words. Or like actions speak louder than words if I'm talking to our two-year-old. Be like, I mean, if you're sorry, actually stop hitting your brother, Thomas. Just stop doing it. That's how you'll know you're sorry. Or I've heard it said before in my home, Joel, if you're really sorry, you'd stop leaving the spoon in the ice cream carton. Like just, if, just stop doing it and that'll show that you're sorry because actions speak louder than words. And although that is true to a certain extent, um, we actually believe, I believe that our reactions speak louder than either. Our actions are our words. Our reactions, what happens to us, how we respond, what boils up in us when we don't get our way, when we lose, when things don't happen the way that we wrote it out in our mind, our reactions speak louder than our words or our actions. Our reactions speak louder than words. Like, for example, like um, one of the things that I react to often in my life raising two toddler boys right now is like when one of our boys says, hey, can I get some ice water? And so I jump up and I go to the kitchen to grab ice water and they speak back to me in this tone that just, but they speak back, no, mommy get ice water. And I'm like, what? I'm right here. I, I, sometimes I lie and I'm like, I taught mommy how to get ice water. I'm really good at this. But they don't want me to do it. And any parents that have toddlers, um, you guys know what I'm talking about there. Or like, for example, we've been... Um, we've gotten carry out a lot lately because uh, we're in a kitchen renovation situation that I've got a lot to say about, but I'm not going to talk about right now. Um, but... Um, <laughs> But uh, uh, I'll like uh, be excited for dinner. I'm going to get some buffalo wings for dinner and I'm picking up dinner and I'm thinking about the buffalo wings all day long and I'm pumped about it. I pick up dinner for everybody. I hand everybody their styrofoam things. I open up my buffalo wings and it's a spinach salad. My reaction in that moment is not very mature and it shows like that I am just a, like a really immature person in that moment because I'm in the worst mood ever and the weather's bad. I want to go back out. I don't know if they'll believe me, all this kind of thing. My reactions show what's really going on inside of me, who I am. Our reactions point to who we really are. Our reactions in a more serious way, they reveal what we really believe, not just what we say we believe, but what we really believe. It reveals our character underneath. And as we'll talk about today, our reactions when we lose, when our side loses, it shows where our hope is and what we're actually leaning our life up against. Because we can say we're leaning our life up against something, but if we respond in the moment and it's not reality, man, there's something else going on beneath the surface. Because here's the reality. That yeah, reactions speak louder than words, but our political reactions, our reactions when who we want to win 
doesn't win, they speak louder than words as well. When our side loses, it reveals a lot about what we actually believe about who God is, God's sovereignty, if you'll say it that way, where our hope is actually anchored. And over the last eight years, like we've seen this play out in presidential elections, right? We can turn the clock all the way back to, uh, you know, I think it was January of 2017 at the inauguration of President Donald Trump. And there was a group of people that had gathered at the inauguration and they weren't there to celebrate. They were there to mourn. And this poor woman has been mean to death because of her reaction and her response to the election and the inauguration of President Donald Trump. And I mean, she was screaming no, and she was like so feeling this fear, this anxiety, this desperation, this despondency over how could our country let this happen? There was probably shame and embarrassment in her scream and in her face, and it's all in there. And can we just like say like some of us in the room felt the way that she felt? Maybe we didn't go to Washington and let it out, but some of us felt that way back after the election of 2016. Turn the clock forward four years later. On January 6, 2021, there was a lot of people that traveled to Washington, D.C. to express how they are reacted to their candidate, President Donald Trump, losing his for his second term. And we have the images like this that um, they live in infamy of people storming our Capitol building, chanting horrific things about elected officials while mixed in with worship songs, while doing terrible things inside of the Capitol where they went to violence. But underneath this emotion that led to this, the reaction was what many of us probably felt was fear about what's gonna happen now and anger and this feeling of retribution and we need to fight back that led to violence. And, and many of us, you know, hopefully like we weren't there in that, but there are some of us that felt the feelings behind what happened on January 6th because our side lost. Now, before I move on, have I equally offended everybody in the room this morning? <laughs> Did I hit all cases? Okay, good. Our political reactions, especially when our side loses, it's louder than words. It actually speaks to what's going on in here. It speaks to how we think God works. It speaks to how we think the world works. And here's the fascinating thing. The person of Jesus, he sees our expectations that we bring to these environments. He actually speaks to those expectations and he disappoints all of them. <laughs> He subverts all of them. He, he sees the way we react and respond when power is up for grabs. He sees them and he disappoints them and he flips them all upside down. And I think he challenges us and gives us a path forward that it's not easy, it's countercultural, but I think it's a vision that um, our neighbors around us, the world around us would stop and stare if we could lose and still live like Jesus is king. So where I want to take us uh, is right where we were last week. We were in the Gospel of Matthew last week. In chapter 20, uh, Jesus had had this incredible teaching moment with his disciples, James and John, and their mom got involved uh, because they wanted, uh, or their mom wanted them to be at the right hand or the left hand of Jesus when his kingdom comes. They wanted to be in the room where it happens, where the power is really taking place. And Jesus is like, oh, no, 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 no. I've got to teach you guys. You guys see, that's the way that the leaders, the lords, the Gentiles do it. But you guys, my people, the Christians, the Christ followers, we're not going to do that. He said these powerful words, not so with you. You're not going to reach and scratch and claw for power and winning that way. 
And right off of the heels of that powerful teaching, he's headed into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And Jesus' journey, his life, his earthly ministry and story will end in Jerusalem this week, but he heads in on Passover. And something we need to know about the cultural background of this moment is that Passover was a huge deal in the capital city of God's people, the Jews, in Jerusalem. It was a huge deal. The week of Passover was the most tense week of the entire year for the Roman Empire who were overseeing and sort of the overlords of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And this was a huge deal because over one million Jewish people traveled traveled and stayed in Jerusalem during the week of Passover. If you think Indianapolis is bad on a Sunday when the Colts are playing, if you think it's bad during Gen Con or Comic Con, like think about one million people descending on the city. And these were all one million Jews who were descending to celebrate Passover. Now, Passover, if you don't recall, or you didn't grow up in church, this was celebrating God's miraculous rescue and salvation from the clutches of the evil uh, empire of Egypt and past, where God passed over them with their judgment and actually set God's people free from bondage and from slavery. You wonder why this was a tense week for the Roman Empire, because a million Jews were coming into town to celebrate how God set them free from their evil oppressors. And I'm sure some of the Roman officials were thinking, if they just get two or three drinks deep, maybe there might be an uproar, an uprising going on during Passover. So this was a very, very tense week for the Roman Empire. So what they did every single year is from the West, from a city called Caesarea, they sent the governor of, who was in charge of the whole region from the Roman Empire to travel into Jerusalem to show people who's boss. And this governor is a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate. And he would make the long journey from where he was staying in Caesarea from the west to come to Jerusalem. And this is how he entered into the city on a white war horse with a battalion of Roman centurions behind him holding banners celebrating Caesar and the power of the Roman Empire. And this was a way of saying, I come in peace, but I am here to show you, you better not mess around or you'll find out this week, you guys. And so from the West, here comes Pontius Pilate with his power, with his military might, with all of his strength into Jerusalem. But at the same time, coming from the east, was a rabbi that had been causing a little bit of a stir. was covered in dust from a no-name town with a bunch of no-name disciples who were rabbi rejects who were coming into town into Passover. A different way, telling a different story. This was Jesus of Nazareth and his disciples. So this is where we're going to pick up with all this tension mounting and all these expectations and all this story of rebellion and uprising all on the line. Matthew 21 tells us how Jesus enters into Jerusalem this way. As they approached Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. And it's almost like these, these disciples who are so steeped in the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, they're like they're, all the lights went off on their dashboard. He wants a donkey? 
and a cold. Oh my, it's Zechariah 9. I know this is what we're all thinking because we all spent all of our quiet time this morning in Zechariah 9 where we always go, you know, like, I know this is old news, but let me go there anyway. But Zechariah 9, uh, Matthew actually quotes it, pulls it from Zechariah 9, 9 right here in the gospel of Matthew chapter 21. He says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Your king comes to you. Jesus' disciples are like, he asked for a donkey. This is happening. Oh my gosh, this is happening. We're going to have a revolution. Jesus' kingdom is coming. Oh my gosh, I'm going to get a palace. I'm going to get like a room in the palace next to him. I'm like setting up my office already in the Jesus administration. This is how power is going to come. This is really going down. And they're so excited. And they think about Zechariah 9.9, but it takes their mind back to the whole Old Testament prophet in his book uh, in the Old Testament, which has tons of pictures, especially in chapter 14, of battle, of war, and victory for God's people who had been oppressed. And they're thinking, oh man, it's on, it's happening right here and now. And so this is what the disciples do. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And they're just ready for the revolution to begin. It's going to get bloody, but Jesus is the king. It's all going to be good because he's a king who's never going to lose. This is all how it is going down. And they head in from the opposite side of Pontius Pilate into Jerusalem in an odd way. And the people, there was this uproar, there's this, this whispering, this stirring that's led to crowds on the streets, a large crowd waiting for Jesus to come in because maybe Jesus is the one that's actually going to free us from our plight, from the oppression that we have experienced. We're told this, the very next verse, verse eight, ah, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. See, there's a huge crowd following Jesus as he, or right around Jesus as he's riding in on a donkey and some of them lay their cloaks down on the ground, which is a Hebrew symbol for respect and submission to make sure that not even their horse or their donkey has any dirt or mud on them. But what's most interesting to me is that we're told that others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The gospel of John gives us more details saying that these were palm branches that they waved at Jesus and some laid down on the road. Any of you guys grow up in church where there was a Palm Sunday celebration where there were little kids so cute waving around their palm branches, singing all the songs, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? This is where it comes from. But in, in today's episode of Joel Ruins Everything, I gotta tell you what was really going on with these palm branches. The palm branch during this period of history was the one image, the one symbol of a sect of Judaism, of the Jewish people called the Zealots. And the Zealots were those who thought that God's kingdom could only come to earth through violence and through coercion and through war and upheaval. And their symbol was a palm branch. <laughs> So here we have this crowd of people who basically come to this rally of this Messiah guy and they come packing. They come ready for a battle. They come ready for a war. They're waving their palm branches, not as a sign of peace and respect, but as a sign of, oh, here we go. Let's get this war started. So you see people in this moment, people that were angry and they're reacting to the stakes of winning, thinking that Jesus is the one, his way is going to actually help us win. And they're feeling anger. They're reacting with anger. They're reacting with violence, with vengeance, with overthrowing, and they're waving their palm branches and putting them down on the ground. But there's another group of people 
There's another group of people a little bit farther down the road during this parade of sorts, and they've got another reaction, another expectation on Jesus and of power. We're told this the very next verse. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When we hear that phrase, Hosanna, I just think of like some great worship songs when I was in high school and college that were all, Hosanna, all you hear is praise to God. Like, oh, let's praise God. Hosanna, Hosanna. And even though now there's a connotation to that, the word Hosanna has very little to do with God, you're so good. We praise you. The word Hosanna is directly translated translated to the phrase, save me, please. It's directed to this emotion of fear and anxiety, of desperation, of feeling despondency of your plight. There's a group of people not singing praise songs to Jesus, but they're throwing out any hope that they have that you're the one that's going to save us from our political plight. You're the one that's going to actually kill the Romans and let us rule again. And this group of people, they're reacting to the stakes of winning and losing as well, but they're just coming at it with a different emotion. And they're reacting to losing, and they're thinking, oh, desperation, Hosanna, Hosanna, oh, like anxiety, oh, maybe you're the one, I don't know, and in fear, they're throwing it out there at Jesus as they're singing these words. See, there's two different groups of people and their reactions to winning and losing and the stakes are high. You've got the people ready to throw down a war. You've got people that are just ready to give up and their last ditch effort is that Jesus would save them from their political predicament. And here's the thing I love about Jesus and also annoys me about Jesus. Can I say that? That Jesus disappoints and subverts all their expectations. He disappoints and subverts, flips upside down all their expectations because he's not coming into Jerusalem for a political win to set up the Jesus administration to become the secretary of afterlife affairs. <laughs> he's coming to Jerusalem not to take sides, but to set up his kingdom. But not to set up his kingdom through a win, through power, through popularity, but to set up his kingdom built off of losing, a kingdom built off of sacrificial love, kingdom built off of mercy and actually enemy love instead of enemy retribution. Is it possible that Jesus disappoints um, their expectations? He disappoints our expectations because um, we just have a bad interpretation of the whole donkey thing, the whole Zechariah thing. You see, uh, they quote Zechariah 9.9 early in the passage, but sometimes it's helpful to see the context around a verse, like maybe not Zechariah 9.9, but 9 and 10 because it might give us some light. Here's the whole Zechariah passage about the king riding on a donkey in context. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's 9-9. Nine, nine. But the next verse, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He, this king, will proclaim what? Peace to the nations, not just to God's people of Israel, but to the nations. And his rule, this rule of peace, will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. They were reacting to a version of a king that Jesus never was going to be because he's upside down from your understanding. 
It's an interesting thing that Jesus decided to come into town in his version of a triumphal entry on a donkey in this lowly way. Even today, when you think about political leaders rolling into town, it's interesting to think how they ride in, right? Like even in America, like we have this funny thing to where there's like a government licensed official black SUV with tinted windows and the little flags. And you just know he's in there, but you don't know exactly which one he's in until he opens the door. Oh, he's so powerful, so chic, so cool. There's other nations that do it in ways too, just to show what power and might looks like. Like in the country of North Korea, we got Kim Jong-un. This is what it looks like when he's rolling to a drive-through in the middle of the night, probably. Um, <laughs> you know, the military might, the banners, the picture of him just looking great, his hair all perfect in that moment. Like all the weaponry and tanks behind him. Uh, in another country, like uh, in Russia, where we have, I guess I'll use air quotes, President Vladimir Putin. Uh, and this is how he wants to display masculinity and power and triumph. This is the picture that they officially wanted to put out about him, shirtless on a horse with a cross necklace to boot to show he's, he's so Christian. Uh, that's just the way it works, right? And it's interesting that we see the way that political leaders roll in to show what power looks like and then to c- contrast that to Jesus. The king of the cosmos rolls into town on a donkey, humble, speaking of peace. It's also an interesting thing because the reaction from both sides, different reactions, the reactions of ready with the palm branches to come and have a revolution and fight and have a battle and the reaction of desperation and despondency and hopelessness, both of those reactions and the display that happened as Jesus entered in to Jerusalem, it broke his heart. Actually, the Gospel of Luke records it this way. This is how Jesus responded to the reactions of the people. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He didn't just like have a couple tears. He wept. He mourned. He grieved over what people were expecting of him and the display of the reactions of the people. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You want to know what breaks the heart of God? It's when people who claim his name cling to power more than the power of his love. It's broke the heart of Jesus because this is not what he came to do. This is not the story that he is telling. And at the end of this passage, we get this little cap on verses 10 and 11 of what happened as Jesus entered in on the donkey. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. I love that question. Who is this that is causing all this stir that everybody's got their hopes that he's this or their hopes that he's that or that he's going to do this? Who is this? They asked this question, man. And you guys, I think this is the question that we are still asking today. And we fill in the blank of that question with whatever is politically expedient to me in that moment. Just like the despondent, desperate people singing Hosanna to him. Just like the zealot-like people who were ready to use violence and to storm whatever they could storm in Jerusalem. In some ways, we all try to box Jesus into our categories for us, what makes us feel good, what works for us politically for us to gain power. We all do this. Some of us love Republican Jesus, don't we? 
Some of us love Democrat Jesus, conservative, liberal, progressive, humanist Jesus. Some of us love feminist Jesus, social justice Jesus, militant, nationalistic American Jesus, health, wealth, and prosperity Jesus. Some of us love ATM Jesus, ATM Jesus, or homeboy Jesus. He's just here for a good time. Like That's like what we like. But here's the good news I want to share with you. And I hope it startles you and it shakes you out of complacency. But this is good news. Jesus is so good that he speaks to every one of our circumstances. But he's too good and too big to be held in any box where we can try to control him. He's too good. He's too big for that. Because he's not just a leader for us to use, a pawn for us to use, to speak out loud so that we get what we want. He is king. And the question is... Will we live like he's king? And will we live in a way that looks like him being king? You know, the rabbis in the first century used this tool in their teaching that I believe Jesus is using in this moment, where there would be a story he'd be telling, but there'd be two objects throughout the story. But then at the end of the story, only one of the objects gets used. If you recall from the beginning of Matthew chapter 21, you see Jesus asked for two donkeys. <laughs> he asked for the donkey for him to ride on, and then he asked for the colt or the foal of a donkey, a smaller donkey. But nothing in the story actually ever happens with that other donkey. What if Jesus entered in to his last week in a way where he's riding on the donkey, but he leaves the donkey empty for you and I to consider what way we're going to walk and live in this world? Will we ride a donkey next to Jesus with humility, offering peace and service to the world? Or will we want to ride a white war horse like Pilate coming in to get our way to scare the you-know-what out of anybody who's in our way? Oh, that question challenges me. What way will we live and walk in our lives? The way of the donkey or the way of a white war horse? The way of Jesus or the way of Pilate? Because what we see... What we see is this, this choice that you and I have in how we live, no matter who wins a popular election or the electoral college. And the choice is framed for us in Psalm 2017. The psalmist says this in this ancient worship song. He says, this is some trust. And trust is this word of belief and allegiance and leaning your whole life on. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Some trust in power and military might and winning and being in charge. Some trust in their political party or their political candidate that they're rooting for. They lean their life up against it. Or others do this. The way of wisdom does this. But we Trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust that Jesus is king, that he is in charge no matter who wins. Hear me, you guys. Whoever wins the presidency, Jesus is still king. He's king, but he's upside down and different than what we'd expect. He's king, but he left his splendor to come to us to win us over. Jesus is king, but he doesn't demand his people to sacrifice for him. He actually sacrifices and dies for them. Jesus is king, but he doesn't use power to coerce, to destroy, but to forgive and show mercy through meekness. Some of us are putting our eggs in the wrong basket, and then we react in a way that doesn't point people to Jesus, we react in a way that breaks us in the process. So the challenge is this, that we will live today as Jesus is king, no matter who wins. And a, a couple of different ways I want to like 
call us into this, challenge us into this as we begin to like bring the plane down here today. If, if Jesus is king, this is what I'm going to challenge you to do if you're a follower of Jesus. To live as a citizen of God's kingdom first. If Jesus is king, this is our first name. This is where our true citizenship is. So we should live as a citizen of God's kingdom. Now, you can come at me in this and you can say like, Joel, that's like this pie in the sky thinking. That's coming from a place of privilege, not to think about what's going down on the ground. And you're only thinking about being a citizen of God's kingdom in heaven. And I'd be like, if that's how you're interpreting it, you are 100% right. Because being a citizen of God's kingdom first does not like wipe our hands clean of having to do the hard work. It actually gives us more responsibility than we could possibly imagine. And this is spelled out multiple ways and places in our New Testament. Paul writing to a group of Jesus followers in Philippi, he says this, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. Now, this verse growing up all the time I heard this is live as a citizen of heaven. You don't belong here, so don't worry about what's going on here. Live as a citizen of heaven because you're going to go there someday. But it's the opposite of what Paul's saying because we quit reading the verse. He says, live as a citizen of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, the good news about Christ. And the gospel, the good news about Christ is that he is king and his kingdom is coming here. To live as a citizen of heaven is to line your life up with the way of heaven. The way that heaven is ordered, you line your life up with it right here and right now, and you live it out to other people. That's what it means to be a citizen of heaven. That means we've got to be engaged. We've got to love. We've got to serve. We've got to be a part of the solution today. Peter says it a different way in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, he's talking to Jesus people, to the church. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He says that so much here, but I just want to lean into that phrase, a royal priesthood. That's what he says about you, that you're a priest if you're a follower of Jesus, that we are a, a collection of priests, not people that speak for God in this place of authority and shut people out. But you know what a priest is? Someone who puts God on display with their life. Someone who lives their life in a way that can facilitate other people knowing what Jesus, who he is and how he's called them to live and so they can be reconciled with him. Man, we are called, no matter who wins, to be a citizen of God's kingdom first and let our whole life be led through that lens. No matter who wins a presidential election, these are the more important decisions that you and I are called to live. The second way, I think, no matter who wins, I think, and this is something I had to take a whole week of this series out, of. this could be a whole week, but no matter who wins, because Jesus is king, my friends, don't stop at just voting. Don't stop at just voting. Even if your side loses, here's what naturally happens. If your side loses, if my side loses, it's like the American pastime to sit around and moan and make fun of and talk about getting even four years from now. All we do is re-delegate what happened in that election. And we have our hands in our pockets for four years, complaining and not getting anything done. When our side loses, when your side loses, don't respond with despair and sulking. Don't respond with violence and the desire to get vengeance or retribution or pride making everybody else that voted the other way look dumb. Don't stop at just voting. Get involved in the way that we can cultivate common good here and now if your side loses. If you really care about those issues, care beyond just once every four years walking someplace and punching a ballot. And I know it's not sexy, I know it's not cool, but what if we actually cared about these things on a local level, not just in Washington, D.C.? 
If we care about people and we want to engage the political system so that we can get common good for all people, we should engage and get educated locally. And I'm talking and preaching on myself as much as I am anybody else. But the reality is people matter to God. And so let's not just stop at voting. And if our person loses, we wash our hands for four years. We can get engaged here and now to actually do the good work, to work for the common good for other people. And then lastly, and lastly, if our side loses, if your side loses, whatever it might look like, don't lose hope. Don't put all your eggs in the basket of a political party or a candidate and just think that, oh, here it is. Here's the end of the world. Here comes Armageddon. And for that, just check out our Revelation series if you want to get back to some of that stuff. But <laughs> don't lose hope. You know, the people of God throughout the story of scriptures, <laughs> you can describe their story in a way where they're always losing being overtaken, overrun, ruled by other nations, always on the underhand, not the upper crust. But God's plan, you guys, is not going to be thwarted from one presidential election, no matter what they tell us on cable news. Cling to the reality that Jesus is still king, no matter who is president. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, um, it's written to <clears throat> a group of Jewish Christians who have lost the temple because Rome ransacked it, and they don't know how they can live as Jewish Christians anymore. And the author of Hebrews, um, whoever he or she was, like they wrote this beautiful treatise for them to hold on to hope and to keep their eyes on Jesus. And in chapter 6, they say this, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. I love that imagery of an anchor for the soul. This is what you and I have in Jesus, no matter what happens politically around us. God is true to his word, you guys. And one election is not going to thwart his plans. Hear me, the world might look different than what you grew up with. The world might look dark in the moment from where you look, but you and I, this is the Christian vision of hope. You and I are living in a world in the midst of rescue and it's a mystery and it's the kingdom of God is now and not yet. There's beauty and there's heartache and there's pain and there's injustice and there's love all mishmashed together. But I've read the back of the book, you guys. This isn't end with God spinning out of control. It ends with restoration, with Jesus winning through love, and not only that, even if our side loses, we shouldn't lose hope. Because I think that the way that we react as followers of Jesus, when our political preferences don't win, I think it actually could be our greatest story and testimony to a watching world. I love what activist and Christian author uh, Shane Claiborne says about this. He says, Christianity is at its best when it's peculiar or weird, marginalized, suffering. And it's at its worst when it's popular, credible, triumphal, and powerful. To use language we used last week, Christianity is at its best when we walk with a limp, not a strut. Maybe the way that we lose could be a stop and stare moment for our neighbors, and it could lead breadcrumbs back to Jesus. But whatever it is, don't lose hope. I challenge you, you guys, let's live like Jesus is king today. Let's live as a citizen of his kingdom first in the way that we walk in the world Let's be people that don't lose hope because we know where the story is going. And let's be people that don't just stop at voting, but we get our hands dirty in the good work that God has in front of us for the sake of our neighbors. So um, I want to close today um, 
every single week in this series, we've had this decision and we've sort of made a pledge at the end uh, that we would like live this out, that as we walk through this uh, tumultuous year that's going to be in front of us, that we would we make a decision to live out a different way as we engage in this political season. And so what I want to do is um, I'd love for us to like, because just in the spirit of the whole topic, I'd love for us to stand and like put a hand over our heart and actually pledge these decisions together that uh, no matter what's happening, we're going to live a different way this year. We're going to look more like Jesus through this process. But first I want to recap where we've been and what we're going to pledge to. First week, we talked about this, that I will not be a jerk to others about the 2024 election. Hear me, you guys. Every candidate that's going to be on the ballot, every person that you want to make a snarky comment to on social media, they're all made in the image of God. And that means that when we disrespect them, we disrespect our maker, which should make us shake in our boots a little bit. And we're going to be people that seek to understand instead of win and make points. We'll not be a jerk. Decision number two is this, that I will give my highest allegiance to the kingdom of God, not a political party or candidate. That we'll find our ultimate allegiance, our ultimate identity in what God says about us, not by you know, going so deep on one candidate or one party that we forsake who we really are as people of God. The third week, last week, decision number three, I will seek to promote the common good for the sake of my neighbors, not my self-interest. That I'm not going to vote with this vision of what's this mean for me and what's this mean for my taxes and my property value. I'm going to think about my neighbors, especially the most vulnerable among us, and I'm going to use my voice for them. And then today, that I will live like Jesus is king today, no matter what side wins the election. I don't want this to be a ritualistic thing, um, but I think there's some power in our voices being raised together. So um, would you guys all stand up with me? <clears throat> and in the spirit, um, would you put a hand over your heart if you feel led to do so? And if uh, you're compelled by this vision, if not my voice, but like, man, the person of Jesus <laughs> is calling you, to live in this different way. Man, let's, let's repeat these words after me just one, a couple at a time. I will not be a jerk. All right, one more time with feelings. I will not be a jerk to others about the 2024 election. I'm starting to believe you. That's good. I will give my highest allegiance to the kingdom of God not to a political party or candidate. I will seek to promote the common good for the sake of my neighbors. This next part with lots of feeling. Not my self-interest. I will live like Jesus is king today. No matter what side wins the election.